Good morning, New Village Church. It's a pleasure to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. We're going to be continuing our study. Philippians 1, starting in verse 18. It's on page 1396 in your pew Bible. And uh, <clears throat> let's see here. I really don't have anything too, too important to talk about this morning. You know, I've got something down here on my notes about, oh, who we are and why we're here. And let's see, the mean, what the meaning of life is. And oh yeah, I wanted to talk about what, what happens when we die too. And there's something here at the end about choosing between life and, and death. and Nothing much really, just your garden variety life and death in the balance kind of stuff. Let's see. Where should we start? Oh, okay. That was, that's an easy one. Who are, who are we? Who are we? You know, in, second, in the second letter to Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes this bold claim. He says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Who are we? Paul says that if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. What do you think he means by new creature? Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is changed behavior. I've heard many testify that before they knew Christ, they were angry, hateful, even racist. They were liars, drunkards, and or drug addicted. They were unfaithful to spouses and sexually impure. But then Jesus, Jesus changed everything. He broke the controlling power of these evils in their lives. He gave them a new freedom and a new capacity to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, and forgiving. This is all wonderful. This is all true. When Jesus makes you a new creature, he changes your behavior. Jesus changes the fruit that your life produces. But, but it's deeper than that. These changes in behavior are just the outward signs of an inward new birth. Jesus says in John 15 that the Christian is like a branch on a vine. The, the branch bears fruit because the life of the vine is in the branch. And in John 3, he says that that life is the result of being born again or born from above. And Paul speaks in Galatians 2 and Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 of the old self and the new self. The old self, that's the deceived self, the corrupt self, the sinful self, begins to die when we come to Christ. And we continue to put it, put it to death. But then there's the new self, the new creation. That's what's born when we are born from above. This new self is not just yourself. It is Christ living in you. Jesus moves into you, into your heart, into your mind, into your life. And so the newness is a gift from Him. And all the good that flows from it is the result of His work in you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The old self dies, but the new self lives because Christ lives lives in the Christian. In Philippians 2.13, he puts it this way. It is God who is at work in you. God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us, in the Christian, transforming us not only to work for his good pleasure, but to will for his good pleasure. The will, the mind, the innermost being of the new creature is transformed by the power of God. What does that transformed mind think? What's going on down in the depths of the heart that is made new? What attitudes, what perspectives does the new self, the new creation, have on the big issues, on suffering and death and the purpose and the meaning of life? In the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul pulls back the curtain on his mind and he opens his heart and his mind to the Philippians and to us so that we can see what he thinks. What does Paul think 
about the big issues of life. Let's read our passage together. It's Philippians 1, and it's start in verse 18. Where Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for these words that you have miraculously preserved for us through the centuries. Lord, we just pray you would guide uh, our thoughts as we consider what Paul has written here. Father, you know this uh, message has been a, really a burden on me for a couple of weeks. I just pray that I will uh, be faithful in speaking what, what you have laid on my heart and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what happens? What happens when you die? Some 450 years before Paul wrote these letter, this letter here, a man named Socrates contemplated this very question, what happens when you die? And it was a pressing question for Socrates because he had been condemned to death. About death, Socrates said, there is good reason to hope that death is a good thing. For the state of death is one of two things. Either it is virtual nothingness, so that the dead has no consciousness of anything, or it is, as people say, a change in migration of the soul from this to another place. Socrates reasoned that if, on the one hand, death is virtual nothingness, he'd be unaware, he'd be enjoying the most restful, best night's sleep anyone could possibly imagine. And if, on the other hand, it's a migration of the soul to another place, he was sure that the gods would remember the good life that he had lived, that they would reward him with an eternity of doing what he loved best, philosophizing. And in the eternity of his imagination, he was sure that the, the gods would grant him the joy of philosophizing with the great kings and the demigods of mythical fame. So death for Socrates was either wonderful, dreamless sleep, or a heaven, really, of his own design. But Socrates didn't really know what death would be. He only had his own ideas based on his life experiences and his imagination. In the end, he had no confidence in his reasonings. His closing statement at the trial in which he was condemned to death revealed this, where he said, the time has come to go away. I go to die, I go to die, and you to live. But which of us goes to the better lot is known to none but God. Is it better to live or to die. Socrates admitted that to him it was a mystery. Even Socrates had to say, only God knows. The good news for us is that not only does God know what happened, 
happens when we die. But he sent Jesus to tell us about it and to unveil the mystery. As John the Baptist said, he who is of the earth, that would be men like Socrates, is from the earth and speaks of the earth. But he who comes down from heaven, that would be Jesus, is above all. And what he, Jesus, has seen and heard, of that he testifies. Jesus is the only one who has been there and back again. And what he has seen and heard, he has testified to, both directly as recorded in the Gospels and also through divine inspiration of his apostles, including Paul. What we read here in Philippians is not philosophical best guesses based on life experiences and human wisdom. Rather, what we have here is the Holy Spirit-inspired truth, the truth from the one who is the truth. And the truth that Jesus gives us through Paul here in chapter 1, verse 21, is that to die is gain. Paul says, to die is to my advantage. To die is to my profit. Or he says, as he says in verse 23, to die is very much better. I should stop here for a second and say, keep your Bible open because I'm going to be looking back to the, that verse, those verses very frequently. And we're going to be jumping around. So to be clear, Paul is speaking literally. When he says die here, he means die. He's talking about the opposite of verse 22, living on in the flesh. The opposite of verse 24, remaining on in the flesh. He's talking about his heart ceasing to beat, his last breath leaving his lips, those lips and his skin turning pale, his ears to stop hearing, his eyes to stop seeing, and his brain to stop thinking. And as he writes to the Philippians, the image, or this image, of his lifeless body is not a hypothetical suggestion. It's a real and present danger. He's in chains in Rome. He's awaiting trial before the emperor. That trial may very well result in torture and execution at the hands of the Romans. One could imagine flogging, burning, crucifixion, beheading, or some combination thereof. Paul knows not what time remains, and he knows not the horrors that his end might bring. But Paul knows this. His end is not the end. To the contrary, his end is gain. In meeting his end, what exactly does Paul have to gain? First of all, for Paul, to die is gain because death means going home. In verse 23, Paul says that he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. The desire to depart and be. Maybe it's so obvious, but let's not skip over it. Paul is clear. Death, death is not the end of existence. It is not virtual nothingness, as Socrates imagined. Instead, Paul knows that he will depart and be. When he dies, Paul knows that he won't blip out of existence. He will be relocated. He will leave his current home and take up residence in a new and true home. Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. New creatures in Christ, Paul says, know that this body and this physical world are not all there is. This natural world, the world we see with our eyes, is temporarily our home, but it is not our spiritual home. It is not our true home. Let me say that again. This world, this body, is not our true home. If you jump ahead to Philippians 3.20, and we'll get there in a few weeks, you can see that Paul tells this to the Philippians. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is where? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As new creatures in Christ, we, along with Paul, are all waiting eagerly to go to our true home in our true country. And Jesus has promised to take us there, either when we die or when he comes again in glory. That's what Paul's looking forward to. To die is gain, because death means going home. Second, 
To die is gain because death means deliverance from suffering. That Paul suffered in this life is well documented in Scripture. We've heard in recent weeks from Acts 16 how he and Silas were seized in Philippi and dragged before the authorities, beaten with rods and thrown in the inner prison to fester through a sleepless night of pain, their feet locked in stocks. And this was by no means Paul's only dance with death. He gives a fuller accounting beginning in 2 Corinthians 23, verse 11, where he says that he received 39 lashes, not once, but five times. He was beaten with rods three times, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked three times. And those are just the, uh, the highlights, if you will. He also speaks of being without food, without shelter, in danger from people of all sorts, robbers, businessmen, pagans, Jews, as well as Christians. Last week we heard that there were even those who were attempting to take advantage of Paul's imprisonment. They were proclaiming the gospel to usurp, if it were possible, Paul's ministry. They had the intention of causing Paul distress uh, in verse 17. David talked about that last week. Everyone, everyone wanted a piece of Paul. But Paul had this confidence that when he died, his sufferings would cease. In verse 19, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance here is more than just mere release from his current physical bonds. The word deliverance is soteria in the Greek. It's the same word that's translated salvation in verse 28. And also in familiar verse, chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Soteria. Paul knows that when he is a new creature in Christ, sorry, Paul knows that he is a new creature in Christ. And new creatures in Christ have God working in them to bring this soteria, this salvation, to completion. He said so in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, that I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. That salvation that God is perfecting in Paul, that salvation that Paul is working out, that the Philippians are working out, will culminate one day when God makes Paul like Jesus. You flip over to uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Very powerful verse. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Being conformed with the body of his glory means in part no more sorrow. No more suffering. No more aging, aching bodies. As the Apostle Paul saw in his vision of the new heaven and the new earth, new creatures in Christ have the promise that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. But this freedom from suffering and sorrow is not, as Socrates imagined, because we will be enjoying the dreamless sleep of virtual nothingness. No, it will be because we have been changed by the power of Jesus' resurrection in us. Paul talks about that in chapter 3 as well, verse 10. We will be enjoying a glorious reality that is not worthy to be compared to our current surroundings. So to die is gain because we will be delivered from suffering. But the greatest truth, the source from which these other truths flow, is that when we die, we will enter Jesus' presence. To die is gain because death means being united with Jesus. Heaven is our true home, not because we will be walking and philosophizing among the kings and the demigods of the Greek myths, as Socrates supposed. But Socrates was on to something. There is a relational aspect to death, and that relational aspect is what makes all the difference. I think God put that longing for relationship and for finding truth in relationship into Socrates. But what Socrates did not know was that that relationship and that truth was ultimately to be found only in the one true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 23 of our text this morning makes this clear. Paul desires what? To depart and to be with Christ And being with Christ is what makes all the difference. Christ's presence 
is the undergirding truth embedded in all of what I've mentioned so far. Let me explain. When I said that to die is gain because it means going home, I referred to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, where Paul said, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What do we mean when we say home is where the heart is? Something along, along the lines of wherever our loved ones are, that is our home. Heaven is our true home because that's where our loved one, capital L, capital O, love, that's where our loved one is. That's where Jesus is. And when I said that to die is gain because it means deliverance from our suffering, I quoted Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I also quoted Philippians 3.21 that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has. How is it possible that there will be no more sorrow or suffering? It's because he, Jesus, will be our comfort and he will be there to transform us by his power. To die is gain because when we die, when we die, we go to be with Jesus. We'll see him face to face. We'll be in direct, immediate relationship with him in a way that we can now only imagine. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. And the reason that we finite beings will be able to be with him and able to see him face to face and not consumed in the brilliance of his glory is because he will make us like him. Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are our children of God and has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's an old poem which has recently been made into a, a song by a pastor and hymn writer from the 1830s that I think well summarizes Paul's perspective on death. I'm just going to read a few of the verses. It's entitled, It is not death to die. It is not death to die to leave this weary road and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. It is not death to close the eye long dimmed by tears and wake in glorious repose to spend eternal years. It is not death to bear the wrench that sets us free. This reminds me of Paul in chains. It is not death to bear the wrench that sets us free from dungeon chain to breathe the air of boundless liberty. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. I think Paul well understands that to die is gain because death is a wonderful thing for new creatures in Christ. Did you catch what Paul says about dying? That he desires it. In verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. New creations understand that death is to be desired, for it is much better than life. In fact, one of the commentators I read said that death is true life. New creations in Christ know the true definition of death. Death is true life. Now as we contemplate that assertion, I don't know about you, but it raises for me a difficult line of questions. If death is so wonderful, why, when imprisoned and suffering, did Paul not just give up? Maybe take some poison or simply refuse to eat he could put an end to his suffering and join Jesus. Why not beg the Lord just to take him home? We might ask this ourselves the same question. It starts to come down to, do we really believe that death is true life? And if so, if death is so wonderful, why do we cling so desperately to life? Why do we even give thanks for another day of life? 
Why do you pray for the Lord's protection? Paul gives us the answer here in Philippians. It's because new creatures in Christ know the true meaning of life. So that's what I want to explore with you next. What is the true meaning of life? Why are we here? New creatures in Christ are not left to wonder what the answer is to this question. God gives us the answer. Here in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul distills God's answer down to four words. Verse 21, to live is Christ. So Paul gave us four words, to die is gain. Those four words capture the essence of God's promises of wonders and riches for us in him that are ours in death. But he also gives us these four short words, to live is Christ, that captures the essence of God's plan for us as we live our lives. What do these four words mean, to live is Christ? What is God's plan for our lives? Here in Philippians 1, Paul tells us that God's plan for his new creatures is that their life be, and hear this, I will say it a few times, is that their life be agony and gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. You heard me right. I said that when Paul says to live is Christ, verse 21, he means that for him to live is to be in agony and gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. I admit that I chose the word agony to catch your attention and to make you think. But that's not the only reason I chose it. I chose it because Paul chose it. In verse 30, Paul says that the Philippians are experiencing the same conflict. They're experiencing the same conflict which they saw in him and now here to be in him. That word for conflict in this verse is from the Greek agon. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Agon, from which we get the English word agony. And the word means contest or struggle. In fact, in secular Greek, that word agon means a gathering for an athletic contest. And agon is a place of contest, a gathering for athletic competition. In the ancient world, these athletic contests could be so severe that they caused the toughest men to crumble. So the word came to mean a struggle or a conflict or a battle or an agony. What was this conflict, this struggle to which Paul refers in verse 30? If we go back one verse, we can start to see it. In verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The conflict is suffering, but not generic suffering. It is suffering in the context of believing in Christ and laboring for the sake of Christ. We've already recalled how, Paul, how much Paul suffered in life. This is life for Paul, if you will, conflict. And this is life for the Philippians. They are experiencing the same conflict, the same agon. But in the broader context, the agon, the conflict, is more than just Paul having been in a Philippian jail, more than him now being in chains in Rome. Conflict struggle describes all he's been talking about through this whole passage, starting from verse 18, where his conflict was with those within the church, through to verse 30, where he alludes to this conflict with those who persecute and imprison him. All his life is a struggle and a gone, an agony, but it is a blessed agony. That's because it comes as a result of the two gifts that God has given. Did you catch those two gifts and the fact that God gave them? In verse 29, Paul says, to you it has been granted. So what follows are gifts given to the Philippians for Christ's sake. And those gifts are two things, to believe in him and to suffer for his sake. God has given Paul and the Philippians faith, and he's given them suffering. And with those gifts, he's put them, as it were, in the games, in the arena of life to compete, to labor, to agonize for Christ's sake. And what does that agonizing look like? Let me repeat the definition of what I said Paul meant by to live as Christ. 
I said, life is agony and gospel service to, each, <clears throat> to others for the sake and glory of Christ. So I want to explain how I arrived at this. First, back up to verse 18. Here Paul says he rejoices, what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. For Paul, living means rejoicing in the spread of the gospel. He's so wholly devoted to the goal of the gospel being proclaimed that it doesn't even matter to him that some people are preaching out of selfish motives to cause him distress in his imprisonment. Why? He explains in verse 19. Because he knows that the proclamation of Christ will turn out for his deliverance, his salvation. He knows that if the gospel goes forth, he will be delivered. He will be saved. If he is faithful in proclaiming the gospel, he wins no matter how his hearers respond. If he proclaims the gospel and the whole Praetorian Guard and all Caesar's household, even all of the Roman Empire comes to faith, and then he's set free in this life, he wins. On the other hand, if he proclaims the gospel and the people refuse to hear and they torture him and kill him and he goes to be with Jesus, he wins. To die is game. So for Paul, it's a win-win. I think that's the hope underlying his confidence in verse 19 when he says, I know, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And again in verse 25 where he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you. I don't think God has revealed to him for certain that he will be released from his chains in Rome. But I think he does know for certain that whether he is released or not, God will be glorified in the proclamation of the gospel and that Christ will be exalted in his body, as he says in verse 20. Christ will be exalted in his body whether by life or by death, his death. And he knows that this will result in his salvation. Whether that involves his actual release from imprisonment, that's not his focus. His focus on that he's lived his life in agony, in struggle, in gospel service for the glory of Christ. The same is true, Paul says, for the Philippians. They ought not be anxious that they are facing opposition in their gospel ministry because that very opposition is a sign to them from God that they are new creatures in Christ who are doing the Lord's work and that they will also indeed be saved. That's what he's talking about in verse 27 and 28 where he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together, <laughs> striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from God. Be like me, Paul is telling the, the Philippians. Strive together for the gospel. That phrase, striving together, it resonates with the word agone that I mentioned earlier. This word striving together, it's a verb, athleo. The soon means together, and the rest of the word athleo, maybe you can guess, is the word from which we get the word athlete, athleo. Paul's saying, be athletes together for the gospel. Compete together with, cooperate vigorously together with each other for the faith of the gospel. Or we could say, struggle, agonize for the gospel. And even in the fact that you face opposition, Paul says, that very opposition is a sign to you that the gospel is true. That you are indeed new creations, living, the li living your life the way you ought to be living, and that you are saved now and you will be saved in the end. Paul has this singleness of mind, this singleness of focus on the exaltation of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. And he urges the Philippians to have that same focus. As he says in verse 18, only in every way that Christ is proclaimed. And verse 20, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. If you follow along with me, I got a, I got a quick list through the text, uh, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> Paul is telling us what he means by to live as Christ. For Paul, this is what living is. Verse 18, he speaks of proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the gospel. Verse 20, he speaks of boldly conducting himself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 20, again, knowing that Christ is exalted in him because he's proclaiming the gospel. And down to verse 22, he speaks of fruitful labor. 
in verse 25, he speaks of working for the Philippians for the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. And verse 27, working together with other believers to proclaim the gospel. Verse 28, facing opposition that rises up against him as he's proclaiming the gospel. And in verse 29, there's the suffering, the imprisonment and worse, because he's proclaiming the gospel. So from this, to live as Christ means three things, if I can boil it down. To proclaim the gospel, to suffer for it, and to see Christ exalted in it all. To proclaim the gospel, to suffer for it, and to see Christ exalted in it all. These three things, actually three of the four parts of what I said to live as Christ means. The full definition I gave you was that life is agony and gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. So we have the proclamation of the gospel, we have suffering for it, and we have Christ being exalted. The one piece I didn't quite cover yet is service to others. Life is agony and gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. And we see this really come to the fore in verses 24 and 25. Actually, back up to verse uh, 23, where Paul says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith. We see here that Paul has a deep, deep love for the Philippians. A desire to do gospel service to others. How deep is his love for the Philippians? It's so deep that even knowing the magnificence of heaven and the freedom from suffering and the wonder of being with Christ in glory and fully knowing, he says, that this is very much better Nevertheless, Paul says, to remain on in the flesh is necessary for the sake of the Philippians. But Paul's love for them is it's no sentimental affection. He doesn't want to just hang out with them. If you look at uh, verse 8 in chapter 1, Paul longs for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus, and that means, verse 9, that he wants their love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That means he wants the Philippians to grow, as he says, to progress in their joy in the faith. He wants them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants them to join with him, to fellowship with him, verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, in the struggle, in the competition, in the agony of gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. He wants them, like him, to know that to live is Christ. What's the meaning of life? Paul says, to live is Christ. And he's opened up his heart and his mind to the, to the Philippians and to us to reveal that what he means by that is that your life, your life, is not your life. Your life is not your own. To live is to sacrifice yourself, to lay down your life for Christ and for others. To sum up, Paul is telling us that New creatures know that true life means death. True life means death. Death to self for the sake of Christ and death to self for others. That brings us to our third point. That new creatures in Christ choose life with a new perspective. So, to die, we said, is to depart this world to enter into true life in Christ. And to live is to remain in this world and die in the, in the service to others and Christ. We come now really to the crux of the matter, starting at the end of verse 21. To die is gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I am hard-pressed, Paul says. The Greek here is suneko. It literally means to be held together, to be seized. Sounds a little weird, but we have the same concept in, modern, in, in our modern English when we say that someone is gripped. Somebody's gripped with fear 
or pressured by their boss or they're feeling the squeeze because of a deadline. Paul is feeling the pressure. He's feeling the squeeze. He's seized. Seized by both the desire to die and the desire to live. He wants so much to be with Jesus, but he also so loves the Philippians and the glory of his Lord that he desires to continue in fruitful labor and service to his king and his brothers and sisters. I can't get the image of, of an old-fashioned scale out of my mind, or as, as we chemists usually refer to it, a balance. You know, it's a balance that looks like a seesaw, and it has pans hanging from either, either end of, a, of, a, of the beam. On the one side, one side is life. On the other side is death. And Paul has life and death in the balance. And Paul's putting these little stones in the pans on either side. In the death pan, he puts a stone marked, no more suffering. The balance tilts towards death. In the life pan, he puts a stone marked, proclaiming the gospel. And the balance tilts toward life. Finding perfect rest in my true home, the balance tilts towards death. Laboring for the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of Christ, and the balance tilts back toward life. Being with Jesus, for that is very much better. That's a big stone. He puts that in the balance, and the balance comes crashing down on the side of death. But I am hard-pressed. I do not know which to choose. But oh, to be with Jesus, that is so very much better. Very much better. But there's something more pressing. Something that grips Paul more. Something, as he says, more necessary. It's the one stone that tips that balance back to life. That stone is marked the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. He puts that in. Bang! The scale comes crashing down on the side of life again. And the issue is decided for Paul. He prefers to live. As he says, he doesn't know which to choose. He doesn't know which to prefer. Paul prefers to live. He will live so long as it depends on him. He will choose to live. He will choose to agonize in gospel service to others for the sake and glory of Christ. In and of itself, for a person to have a preference for life over death is, is not really remarkable. The, the desire to live, the will to survive, is a normal, healthy, and indispensable part of human nature. The question is, from where does that desire to live spring? Apart from Christ, Human nature is corrupt. Without Christ, <clears throat> uh, we are set on the things of this world. Romans 8.5 says, We are slaves to the world, the flesh and the devil. Ephesians 2 tells us, Our hearts are captive to the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of many things, Jesus tells us in Mark 4. According to our corrupt human nature, there are all kinds of things that we might put in the life pan on that balance. We might say things like, I choose to live because life is pretty good after all. I choose to live because I love my family or I'm building a career or I'm building a bank account or making a nice home for my spouse and my kids. Maybe I want to make a name for myself. I want to climb that corporate ladder. I want to enjoy my retirement. I want to enjoy my grandchildren. I want to enjoy time with my friends. I enjoy being entertained, reading books, watching movies, going to the opera, I enjoy watching sports or playing sports. I enjoy my work. I enjoy my play. I find self-satisfaction in my achievements or my heritage or even my church. And these things are all generally good things. We could also go down the list of desires that for not so good and evil, even downright evil things. Some people want to live for sensual pleasures or perverse desires and addictions. In fact, what can often happen when our minds are fixed on the things of the earth, when they are the reasons that we choose life, these things begin to rule over our hearts. They become our kings, our gods, really our idols. And then what was good can become evil. The desire to achieve can turn into the will to dominate, the lust for power, hatred toward others. <laughs> the desire for the comforts and pleasures of this life can turn to indulging the flesh and the development of addictions. Romantic love for one can turn to unbridled lust for many. And this is how the old self thinks. 
These are the things, good and bad, that apart from Christ, we would put in the pan uh, of balance, or the, pan, the life pan of our balance. But I don't know if you noticed, none of these things were in Paul's life pan. That's because Paul, Paul is a new creature in Christ. And new creatures choose life. Not for all these reasons I just mentioned. New creatures choose life because they have a new perspective. And that new perspective is found first and foremost in the pattern set for us by Jesus. I don't know if you caught that yet in our passage today. Who above all knew beyond all doubt that death was gain? That his death meant that he would be glorified. And in fact, that he would ascend on the clouds and be seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus. Right? Jesus knew that his death was his gain. And not only his gain, but also gain for all those who would call upon his name, who likewise would be glorified with him. And who knew better than anyone else that his righteous life, lived in perfect obedience to his Father, would bring the good news of salvation by faith, indeed would make possible the very truth that men can be saved by grace through faith, and that not as a result of works, whose life, really, was an agony in gospel service to others, for the sake and glory of God. Jesus' life. Jesus chose to live. He chose to be made in the likeness of men and to live that life as a servant and a suffering servant of that and give that life ultimately as a ransom to save others. Jesus chose to live for those reasons. And for Jesus to live was to die in service to others and to God. As well, for Jesus to die was to depart this world and enter his true life with God. So Paul's not inventing anything new here. He's simply following the pattern of Christ. And he's calling the Philippians to imitate him, even as he imitates Christ. And Jesus, this morning, Jesus through Paul, is calling you. If you are not a new creature in Christ, know these truths. Jesus was born a man and lived a righteous life and died for sins and was buried and raised on the third day. This is the gospel. And whoever believes in the Lord Jesus and trusts in these truths, that one, by God's power, also dies to sin and lives to God. The message to you this morning is repent and believe the gospel and you will come to know and understand that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And understanding that, your life will never be the same now and for eternity. If you are a new creature in Christ, Jesus is calling you this morning to put off the old self and put on the new. He's calling you to have this new perspective that we talked about, to have this new perspective in your heart and in your mind. He's calling you to know that your life is not your own, that you were bought with a price, that every aspect of your life is to be lived for him, not for yourself, but for others and for the gospel and for the glory of God. He's calling you to make this your life's operating principle. To live is Christ. A true life is to die in service to others for the sake of Christ. And he's calling you to rest in the truth also that to die is gain that having lived your life according to the principle that to live is Christ, a new creation in Christ has nothing to lose. Death is not loss. Death is gain. Death is victory. Death means being with Christ. And oh, that is very much better. Now, I know it's not easy. It's not easy to put off the old self and put on the new. But for new creatures in Christ, there's good news. And Paul talks about it here in Philippians. Paul says it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, as we already said, chapter 2, verse 13. And he also reminds us that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day when he calls you home, in chapter 1, verse 6. And in the end, after all the laboring and the striving and the agony, we will find that we, we do not have a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness which comes on the basis of trusting in him. 
So it's all from him. That's chapter 3, verse 9. It's all from Philippians. There's a lot in here. So the message to new creatures. New creatures. God began to make you new. He will make you completely new. Surrender to him. Die to him every day, every moment. And don't give up the struggle. Don't faint in the agony. And as Paul says, chapter 4, verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we just praise you and thank you for these truths. We praise you that Jesus set that pattern for us, that he chose to live, to live his life as a servant, and to do that for us so that we might have life. And we praise you that he knew that his death was gain and that he willingly submitted to that death, to that agony, to that suffering, again, that we might have life. Father, I just pray you would give us this new perspective, Lord, that we often fight against in our old self. Help us to put on the new self that sees things in a new way. Help us to, like Paul, like the Philippians, to believe in you, to make your glory and your gospel priority in our lives. Father, to submit to you in everything that we do, to order our, our lives in such a way that we can be do, doing fruitful labor for you. Put in our heart that focus that Paul had to see the gospel go forth and to see others increase in their joy and progress in the faith and help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and help us to rejoice in the truth that to die is gain and that someday, someday we will see you face to face and we will be like you. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.